Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone else that's listening in your cars and in your homes to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. Um, you might be noticing, if you're a regular listener, that I'm not Jean. Uh, Jean's actually not here in the studio today. She's very, very busy. She's in the process of writing an important book, or at least an article, um, uh, on, on the history of the whole thing that happened to Justice Murphy back in the days of the High Court case in 1981. That will be the Dogs High Court case I'm talking about where we as an organisation went into bat for state schools in the High Court of Australia and unfortunately lost. Well, we lost um, the majority decision, but Justice Murphy, who was a High Court judge at the time, decided that the dogs had a point. Um, he was in the minority, however. Anyway, Justice Murphy, um, a former Attorney General, I think, in the Whitlam government, um, was hounded and, um, yeah, they really had a good go at him. And the uh, documents about Justice Murphy have been released now um, because the statutes of limitation is time. And the process by which he was indicted, I think he was indicted, the process whereby he was attempted to be brought to trial on allegations of corruption have now been released. And um, Gene's very interested in those because... Turns out it wasn't a simple process, and now we can find out more about it. Anyway, that's a very long explanation at the beginning of our program as why Jean is not here. Um, uh, Jean's working very hard on that paper, um, which I hope will be a book. Um, but we still have to keep going because we still have to keep fighting. So you've got myself, Rob, and Dale in the studio today. And what we'll be up against is talking to you about the issues both here in Australia and abroad in terms of education. Um, in Australia, there has been a movement back to the state school system over the last five years, away from the private school system. But even this movement itself is, 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 is an interesting one that's, that I think is worth, worth examining. And we're going to examine this movement in detail because certainly in the Australian context, we have what are called selective state schools and non-selective state schools. That is, schools that specifically select on the basis of what can be, for want of a better word, be called intelligence, and um, those schools which uh, are true state schools in, in, in the absolute sense, which is schools that are open to all and offensive to none, and of course free and secular as well. Um, but it's a fascinating process. We'll be examining that in some detail, and then we'll be travelling overseas. Um, on the DOGS program over the last couple of years, there's been, we've been commenting on the interesting things that have been happening in the education processes of America because they have a new president over there and they actually have a new education secretary called Betsy DeVos. Um, a lot of people were predicting some terrible things were going to happen if she was the education secretary and um, it's been over a year now since she's been in post so we're going to have a little recap about what's happened over there in education in the last 12 months. But that's what you've got to look forward to in the next hour, um, both here in Australia and abroad, various education issues being brought to light on 3CR. Eh? That's 855 on AM dial and podcast, because 3CR is the only place you're going to hear about this stuff. Certainly we'll hear about it in the mainstream media. Anyway, we'll be back after these messages. The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from Indigenous struggles and decolonisation, climate change, anti-racism, unions, feminism, refugees, Anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at 
amelbournebookfair.org. That's info at amelbournebookfair.org. Or message us on our Facebook page, Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Yes, we'll be kind of talking today about education in Australia in a sort of broader context. Um, it's sort of, we might get a little bit philosophical, but we'll be discussing indeed what education is. What is education? And if Jean were here, she'd be saying educare comes from the Greek and the Latin roots, which is edu and care, which is to draw out, to draw out of the child that which is already existing within, which is a lovely idea. Um, it's not worth thinking about, I think, but in the Australian context, it can either be one of two things. Education is that which we, as a country, as a nation, as a village, as a town, as a street, as a household, we contribute to for the benefit of not just our children, but all of the children. The idea being that the more education the largest number of us get in this greater nation of Australia, um, the better it is for everybody. It's a collective enterprise. Um, now, we have this thing called government, which we put our collective resources into, which is responsible for the education of all the people, all the children at least, but also all the people, because education these days is a lifelong thing. Um, and this, you know, these, these billions of dollars that are spent on education are for the benefit of us all. Um, of course, how do these benefits accrue? Well, they accrue on a person-by-person basis. Everyone's supposed to get it. We're all individuals and we're all supposed to get an education, but the endeavour itself is something that we work together to achieve. We get upset in Australia when we're not as well educated as children in Bosnia, which is currently the case, um, when our children aren't doing as well as other children around the world. It's a competition in a giant worldwide marketplace, but essentially it's something that we're supposed to be doing for each other. When I say supposed to, I've got a bit moral there. In an ideal world, I think it is best if education is something that we do for ourselves as opposed to something that I do for myself, which is in fact the competing idea about what education is all about. In a world where education is placed into a marketplace and competition is the driving mechanism for how children learn, in that If you look at education in those terms, then the benefit that I receive for myself and my child, for instance, if I was a parent, um, are in fact the total benefit. That is the total benefit which I wish to achieve. Yes, I am forced to pay taxes and I do such things, but the education of my child or myself is my responsibility and the devil takes the hindmost. If someone else does not receive an education, or if someone else receives an education poorly because of the resources that I've used, that's not my concern. I'm living in a marketplace. I'm living in a world where I and my education are my business, and you and your education are your business. And those two things, if they happen to compete with each other, well, let the best man, woman or child win. Now, these are the competing ideas. In the Australian context, this situation where citizens are forced to fight citizens for an educational benefit has been standard in the Australian culture now for more than a generation. After the Second World War, I think most historians would agree that education was seen as a collective enterprise. But since, um, since Whitlam introduced Um, funding for private schools so that private benefit could be accrued on using taxpayers' funds since that time and into the 80s and the 90s and then the early noughties and then till today. Generations have gone, gone through and grown up and become adults with the pervading idea in their mind that in Australia you have to fight for your education and you have to fight somebody else. You don't have to fight the government. You don't have to fight people overseas. You have to fight your neighbours. And if not your neighbours, you have to fight people from neighbouring suburbs. And if not from neighbouring suburbs, you have to fight people from neighbouring cities or towns or states or some other place. Now, this has been played out usually in the Australian context where you have private schools and you have public schools, where private schools have the idea that they provide a better educational service because they are paid for by the parents and the state together. Whereas in a state school, the state is the only person 
or the state is the only um, entity that provides money. And so the idea, basically in Australia, is that a private school is better than a state school because more money goes into it, and so therefore it has to be, because that's the way free markets work. This, of course, is fallacy, um, and it can be proven to be so, and has been proven to, to, to have been a fallacy for all these years. However, the fact that if you pay for an education for your child, then you deserve a better education than, 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 your, than the neighbour of your, than your child, or than the child of your neighbour, I should say. This idea has been pervasive to the point where even now it has created a situation where we have what we call selective state schools. Now, selective state schools are concentrated in the major cities. There are selective state schools in Victoria. Schools like Melbourne High, schools like McGrob, schools like University High, which are semi-selective, which is to say they draw from the local community, but also they take children who are deemed to be intelligent, um, I use that in inverted commas, um, from other places, so that all the intelligent children can be educated in a state school together. The principle is that if you put all the intelligent children in the same school at the same time, then they won't be held back by students who are less intelligent. It's the principle of a selective state school. This whole process, by the way, is funded by taxpayers. The idea is that the good and the great, because of just not their income, oh no, no no one's supposed to care how much money their parents earn, it's just the intelligence of the child that matters. And so the gifted and the talented can be put together and the teachers won't Teachers can move more quickly with those students because they won't be held back by children of average intelligence or poor intelligence. Now, this is the principle of a selective state school. These exist primarily, as I say, in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. There are some in other major capital cities, but Sydney in particular has a very large number. And so we've got to the point now, in 2018, where we have a large number of selective state schools, which are for the smarter children of Australia. These are not fee-paying schools. These are not private schools. You cannot buy your way into these schools, technically. However, something very strange has happened in Australia in the last 10 years. Because selective schools, selective schools that are state schools, have overtaken the private school system as being the most advantaged economically. With schools in Sydney, such as Norman Host Boys and Hornsby Girls College, now eclipsing elite colleges such as Ignatius, Barker and Ascombe, which are very rich private schools in Sydney. More than half of the state's top 20 most socially selective, um, should I say, most socially educationally advantaged schools are now state schools in New South Wales. I'll say that again. In New South Wales, more than half of the top 20 rich schools, that is to say schools with very rich parents who send their children to them, are now state schools. But they are selective schools because they are the what they call in, in, um, in New South Wales and Victoria the absolute educational prize for parents. Securing... A spot for your child in a selective state school requires such investments of time and money that almost three quarters of the students who go to selective state schools, these are taxpayers funded state schools, are from the highest quarter of the social educational advantage. And only 2% of the students who go to state selective schools are from poor, the poorest families of Australia. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what selective schools were initially set up to do. State selective schools were set up to take the smartest kids, no matter what the income of the parents. But now, in a marketplace where cleverness, or the appearance of cleverness at least, can be bought with tutors, the opposite have happened. But the popularity of this process of taking rich, intelligent children, rich, intelligent children, out of the state school system means that there is now, in New South Wales in particular, a brain drain. 
And when a new selective school is established somewhere in New South Wales, it's found that the results and enrolments of all the schools around it decline substantially. They are functioning in, in New South Wales and Victoria as parasite state schools. It's strange. It, it, it's, it's where we get this idea of education, these two comp- big competing ideas. Of education is something that we do for ourselves. Being subverted, even in the state school system, is something that I do for myself. Because if you get a lot of eyes doing things for themselves, that is not as useful or indeed as, as, as good, in a moral sense, as us doing things for ourselves. And education is one of those things where, it's one of those realms of human endeavour where the collective will of a lot of people is the obvious, is, has, has an obvious benefit. Shouldn't even need to be argued. But the report has just been released in New South Wales, New South Wales that's, that, that, that's found this out. This part argues that selective schools were designed to cater for all high achievers but are now not doing that and dominated by children of parents with resources to pay for things like coaches and tutors. It reflects, one of the co-authors of the report, Christine Ho, says, it reflects the ferocious competition that is going on to get into these schools. They are, she says, public schools. You wouldn't expect to see them at the top of these advantage lists. It doesn't seem possible for them to be eclipsing private schools, but they are. Among middle-class families, they have become absolute education prize. Families begin planning to get their children into these schools years in advance. The tutoring begins to get these kids into these classes early in primary school, and it costs thousands. If you don't start planning early, you will jeopardise your chances. Now, those resources are not available to most families. That's how you end up with this concentration of advantaged families. The socio-educational score of a school looks at the education and occupation of the student's parents. So the report also looked at the selective school's impact on suburban high schools by studying the opening of four partially selective schools in the Sydney southwest in 2010. The four schools they looked at were, were Bonnie Rigg, Prairie Wood, Moorbank and Elizabeth MacArthur. Now between 2005 and 2017, the number of distinguished achievers... Um, at VCE or HSC, they have up their level, rose at the selective schools. At Moorbank, the proportion rose from 13% to 28%. But neighbouring schools experienced no increase or decrease. In some cases, the number of high achievers halved and, of course, enrolment dropped in all the neighbouring schools. Now, this report is a fascinating thing, but underlying it, and this is what, this is what we're bringing up, underlying it is a deeper truth a more important truth. And it's not a truth that relates to whether it's collective or individuals doing things. It's not the big philosophical truth. It's a truth about the numbers. And the simple truth is that if you send your child to a selective school or you send your child to your local state school, which is not selective, that decision makes almost no difference to your child. The marketplace of education that, you are, that, that many parents are furiously trying to get advantage for their children, it, it, it's fiction. It doesn't actually work. And it's been proven not to work. And I'll be describing that, or actually, in fact, Dale will be describing that after a little bit of music.
the Dogs program. I was mentioning just before we had that lovely piece of music from Dangerous Liaisons, I was mentioning that this whole marketplace of sending your child to a selective school gives them a benefit is actually a fiction. It's proven to be a fiction. Now, parents, I know, love their children very much. And one of the ways they can express that love is to get their child into a school which will give them the most advantage in their future life. And if someone comes along and says, this will give your child an advantage and you believe it, um, then that's what you'll do. But here at the Dogs, we're here to tell you that um, you've been lied to. <laughs> if you demand that you have to send your child to a selective school and spend the money and time and resources to do that and become disappointed if that's not the case, then you're actually buying into something that's not actually there. Now, I'm not talking about you know, magical rainbow unicorns, um, which really aren't there. I'm talking about something that can be proven not to be there because I can never prove that there aren't magical rainbow uniforms, unicorns, but I can prove that the idea that selective schools give your child a benefit are, in fact, that, that is, in fact, a fiction. And I think Dale can explain a bit more. Thanks, Rob. I've got an article here from the Sydney Morning Herald on the 13th of July by Henrietta Cook and Jordan Baker, uh, and it's entitled, ATARs Boosted Only Slightly by Selective Schooling, says Report. Selective schools only marginally improve students' Australian tertiary admissions rank, according to new research that questions whether families overestimate the importance of a selective school education. Students who attend select entry schools achieve ATARs that are up to just two points higher on average than similar students elsewhere, a new, a new paper from the U- University of Melbourne has found. It suggests these high-performing students would have achieved similar results if they'd remained at their previous state Catholic or independent schools. Our results point to, to small effects in terms of university entrance ranks. Overall, the small selective school effect appears to reflect the high levels of education, educational aspiration of both selective students as well as applicants who attended other schools. Researchers Brendan Huang and Chris Ryan from the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research tracked the performance of two groups of students who sat entrance exams for selective entry state high schools. One group was accepted into the sought-after schools while the other group missed out or turned down their offer. All students achieved similar NAPLAN results in Year 7 and 9 were highly motivated and disproportionately from immigrant and socio and advantaged socioeconomic backgrounds. But even the small difference in ATARs achieved by the two groups of students could be overstated, the researchers concluded, because those accepted into selective entry schools were likely to be brighter than those in the group who were rejected. This meant the two groups being compared were not a perfect match. While two ATAR points doesn't sound like much, the researchers noted it could be the difference between being accepted into a student's chosen course or missing out. Mr Huang, a PhD candidate, said he hoped his research led to a less narrow focus on academic achievement at selective entry schools. One might easily think that selective schools might be more successful in helping students achieve higher ATARs simply for the fact that, on average, only high-ability students enter these schools. But this is a form of sorting that we economists call a selection effect. While selective entry schools achieve many of the state's top HSC results, they have been criticised for draining neighbouring schools of their brightest and socioeconomically advantaged students. Academics say this is compounding inequity in the education system. Juliana Hartanto from Sydney's Northwest has one daughter, Felicia Gunawan, 15, at a private school and another, 12-year-old Sienna, at a selective state school. She said the school suits their temperaments. Felicia is an all-rounder, Sienna is an academic. But she doesn't believe that the girls would get the same results if they swap schools. It's about environment, she says. If they, were self-motiv- if they are self-motivated and driven academically, the environment will definitely push them to be better. At selective schools, the standard is higher and the kids can be quite competitive. 
generally 70% of the kids are sitting in the A grade. That in itself speaks of motivation to be better. Environment plays an important role too. There are 47 selective or partially selective schools in New South Wales and only eight in all other states and territories. A spokesman for the New South Wales Department of Education said it was reviewing the gifted and talented policy to ensure it reflects the latest research into education of students with advanced abilities. This report is likely to be finalised this year. Yeah, thanks very much, Dylan. I think it's fascinating. Even in that process, you can, you can hear the sort of, you can hear the horror in the voices of those people. So, but, 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 but if I've, I've, I've wasted my money, <laughs> if, if that's the case. Of course, here at the Dogs, because we are talking about the children rather than a child, the effect of draining um, students who are academically capable, demonstrably ac- academically capable in a school setting, that doesn't mean they're smart, um, from, the na- from the schools around, um, does in fact have, have a socially limiting effect, but not just on the students who have been taken out, but on the students who have been left behind in the state schools that take all comers because they are free, secular, universal and um, open to all. Now, within this context, I absolutely, absolutely, I think it's even more fascinating because what's, what, what is also true between the lines is that whether a child, whether the school's an independent school or a Catholic school or a state school makes no difference at all. The whole idea of spending your money on a private school in Australia gives you no advantage for your child. But, if you were to catch a tram or a train or a bus or go on any road out in, in Melbourne in particular, you will be bombarded with advertisements from private schools telling you about the benefits of spending money at their particular religious educational institution. They're touting for business. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I see something on late night television touting for business, I know it's something I really shouldn't be buying. And if I've noticed that the advertising for private schools has got more and more strident and more more and more money has been spent on advertising in terms of private schools because the product they're offering in the marketplace isn't worth buying. And I would take one step back and say, it's not a marketplace in the first place. Your child is your child. Whether they succeed or not depends, depends upon you as a parent, and the people you bring to that child as part of their life and their upbringing and their education. How much you pay and the school they go to is, in fact, one of the least important things. Um, So, yeah, I mean, often I hear parents talking about their love for their child, and often, indeed, I hear parents saying, well, I can't possibly send my child to the local state school. You wouldn't send your dog there. I actually heard that from someone, a, a, a good friend of mine, um, he said, oh, look, I, I would have sent my child to the local state school, but I couldn't because it's such a rubbish school, you wouldn't send your dog there. And I responded to him. I said, so you're telling me that where you live, there is a state school that's so bad that you wouldn't send your dog there and you're doing nothing about it. He went, oh, well, it's not up to me to do anything. Well, of course it's not up to you. It's up to every this The idea that in Australia, in in this country... People will live in a, in a place, in a town, in a suburb, in, 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 in a house, in a place where there is a state school that it is their opinion that is a terrible school, and they're okay with that because they can buy their way out. Now, that, to me, crosses the line of, of what is good for education. If that is true, and by the way, I happen to know it's not, and that's just the opinion of someone who, 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 who doesn't know what goes on in that school, and I do, and it's a wonderful school. So they didn't express it as a lie. They expressed it in terms of ignorance, I'm sorry to say, and by the time we finished that conversation, they realised all the good programmes that were going on it, and perhaps they should reconsider. Um, but, but yeah, just the whole idea of, well, you know, there's this terrible school that does terrible things to these poor children down the road, and I'm okay with that because I can buy my way out for my child, is in fact, I think, one of the fundamental problems at the heart of education in Australia today. But let's not talk about Australia anymore. It's all getting a bit grumpy-making. Let's go overseas and find out what Betsy DeVos is doing with her mate, Donald Trump, because they're trying to get rid of... Get this, they're trying to get rid of the Education Department of America. It's just hilarious. Anyway, we'll be back with more after this. 
2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Conjate Me Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing Strong, Jabaluka 20 Years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net, a 3CR supporter. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the www's or indeed um, you can get hold of this program at our website um, www.adogs.info or indeed the 3CR website www.3cr.org.au But um, I was promising before we're going to find out what's going on in America. It's kind of hilarious. Donald Trump, the President of the United States of America, um, is, is President of lots of things in America. He's President of all the armies and the helicopters and the, and, and, and the coal mines and oh, who knows what. But he's also President of Amer- America's schools. He's President of all the schools and, and they have an education department. And Donald Trump thinks that America doesn't need an education department, so he's going to get rid of it. Just recently, um, Donald Trump and his administration have released a proposal to reform the federal government. One of those proposals is to merge the education department with the Department of Labor. So the Department of Teaching and Learning stuff is the same as the Department of Doing stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Education is for labor, for nothing else at all. I'm referring now from an article um, from the Brookings Institute over there in the United States, an article written by Monica uh, Belkifasi. And he did this on Monday, the um, July 16th this year. It's, it's fascinating because apparently, and I had no idea about this, this is fascinating, uh, the Republican Party in America has always opposed the existence of the Department of Education. And the Education Department was only set up in America in 1979. Didn't know that. Anyway, they, they all got very grumpy because Obama, you know, the previous president that the Republicans don't like, he set up this thing called Common Core because what was happening in America is that each of the states were responsible for the education of children in that state separately. So in some states they learned all about evolution and in some states they really didn't. In some states they learned geography, which is to say, you know, about places that aren't America. Uh, in other states they really didn't. And he introduced what was called the Common Core Standard which is to say there are some things that Americans should, should know when they leave school. And the Republicans thought that was a really bad idea. Um, I think probably because what he thought, what Obama thought all the kids should know would be, you know, established facts of one form or another, whereas Republicans like, you know, disputing things like facts, you know, evolution and um, the theory of, theory of natural selection being something that most people regard as something that's un- unarguable and certain people in the Republican Party think is very arguable. Anyway, this has been going on for some time, but this whole idea of merging the Department of Education with the Department of Labor is something that's got a lot of people quite worried because that means that the concept of people being educated is, to, is, is principally focused on getting a job and nothing else. The whole idea of knowing things for their own sake and being an informed citizen 
is in fact a moot point as far as Betsy DeVos, who's Trump's education secretary, and Donald Trump are, are interested in. And it's not just, you know, all the, all the snowflakes on the left that are jumping up and down about this. There's some people on the right jumping up and down, some American conservatives who think that perhaps this is not necessarily a good idea. And I think we're going to get Dale again to explain exactly what's going on in America with the far right American conservatives and why they think Donald Trump is not doing the right thing by the children of America. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, I've got an article here from the American Conservative by Michael Schindler uh, from July the 16th this year entitled, On Education, Trump Needs More Aristotle and Less Betsy DeVos. Keep the Department of Education, but repurpose it towards a nobler cause. The United States government has a frustrating habit of enlarging its bureaucratic apparatuses rather than consolidating them. So when Trump when the Trump administration recently proposed merging the departments of labour and education because, in the words of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, artificial barriers between education and workforce programs have existed for far too long, it seemed like cause for celebration. However, there's a vital reason that the Department of Education is distinct from the Department of Labour. Its chief purpose, as opposed to facilitating a robust workforce, is nothing less than the conservation of democracy. In Book 6 of Plato's The Republic, Socrates argues convincingly against the viability of, a, of democracy. Just as it would be imprudent to, en- to entrust the decision of who should be the captain of a ship to a crew that doesn't necessarily know which qualities are needed, Socrates contends that it would be foolish to entrust choosing a society's leader to its citizenry. He also argues that the inherently polarising nature of democratic discourse makes electing people based on careful consideration difficult, if not impossible. In a passage evocative of recent political rallies and campus debates, Socrates describes how, when his countrymen discuss politics, they praise some things and blame other things, equally exaggerating both, shouting and clapping their hands, and the echo of the rocks and the place in which they are assembled redoubles the sound of the praise or blame. Socrates then challenges his companions to imagine a man trying to evaluate the merits of a particular policy or candidate in such an echo chamber. He asks... Will any private training enable him to stand firm against the overwhelming flood of popular opinion? His companions readily agree that such resolve would be unlikely, and it's easy to see why. Nowadays, just as hyperbole and uproar once filled the Athenian Forum, so too are American voters polarised with aid from social media. In this light, it's hard it hardly seems wise to allow the public to elect their leaders. However, with a bit of good policy making, our electorate can, at the very least, become com- competent. Plato's most famous pupil, Aristotle, advises policymakers in Book 8 of his Politics that the citizen should be moulded to suit the form of, a, of government under which he lives. He means that in order for a system of government to function, it needs people who can function within it. In practice, this requires that culture and policy ideally be oriented towards the functioning of society. With regard to policy, especially in a democracy, Aristotle writes, the legislator should direct his attention above all to the education of youth, for the neglect of education does harm to the constitution, because a constitution, even an excellent one, that can be altered by a citizenry that neither understands it nor the consequences of changing it, is quickly ruined. For a capitalist society where, the, where a basic education in the liberal arts isn't necessarily going to be provided by market forces, heeding Aristotle means making sure the state steps in. And that's exactly what the Founding Fathers, encouraged by Thomas Jefferson, did. In his sixth annual pre- presidential message to Congress, Jefferson writes, 
Education is here placed among the articles of public care, not that it would be proposed to take its ordinary branches out of the hands of private enterprise, which manages so much better all the concerns to which it is equal, but a public institution can alone supply those sciences which, though rarely called for, are yet necessary to the improvement of the country and some of them to its preservation. Essentially, Jefferson argues that despite its inefficiency relative to private enterprise, the government has a responsibility, justified in part by the precarious nature of American democracy, to erect and invest in institutions tasked with the education of the public. The Department of Education is the most substantial government institution charged with the stewardship of this obligation. Certainly its nobler purpose doesn't make it untouchable. Student loan forgiveness programs that effectively subsidise graduates working for the government record levels of spending and stagnating educational outcomes are just a few of the things that need to be addressed. And to its credit, the Trump administration's working vigorously with Congress on those and other matters within the department. However, to merge the Department of Education with the Department of Labor and redirect its purpose towards DeVos's beloved workforce programs, which explicitly aim at making students good workers rather than good citizens, would be to steer it away from its imperative mission. That would threaten the very foundations of our democracy. Oh, I think that's a fascinating article. I really do. Um, I mean, it's strange to put it here on the Dogs Program, um, an American conservative jumping up and down, quite, I think, quite wistfully about the glories of fascism and totalitarian, but saying if we are going to have a democracy, you really do need to have an education population so that when they do vote, the vote has meaning and you can stop yourself having demagoguery. Um, now, the fact that Trump's not very keen on, on on stopping demagoguery by getting rid of the education department and just making education a functional labour force generation process, I think is absolutely fascinating. Now, of course, that particular author couldn't couldn't you know couldn't stop him couldn't stop themselves from having a dig and say, well, gee, Trump's all right because he's doing some good things. Honestly, he is. However, this is not one of them. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I particularly like the bit where Jefferson, all those years ago, wrote, education is placed here among the articles of public care. Not that it will be proposed to take its ordinary branches out of the hands of private enterprise, which manages so much better all the concerns to which it is equal. What Jefferson is saying there is that private enterprise is not a concern. Sorry, private enterprise is not equal to the concerns of education. I, which, which I think is true. I think that's just a truth. Private enterprise is not equal to the challenges and concerns. It's not equal to the process of actually educating children of a nation. That's true in Australia as it is in the United States. We'll be returning um, with well, a few more comments on the glories of Betsy DeVos after this. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. What a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit! Our education is not for profit! You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. So, Betsy DeVos, she's been the Education Secretary now in the United States for almost over a year. Um, Good luck to her, I suppose, although I wish she'd go away. What has she done? What has Betsy DeVos done? There was a great deal of concern about what she was going to do because she was definitely an an advocate for private enterprise which, as Jefferson said, um, is not up to the challenges of not up to the challenges of educating all the people. Uh, but she thinks that it is, and people were very worried. So what's she actually done? Well, what she's done is she's taken things that Obama did and she's undone them. The first one relates, of course, um, in terms of Betsy DeVos, one of her first concerns was sexual assaults 
in American universities. And one of the ways you can get rid of sexual assaults on, in American universities is change the guidelines about what sexual assault actually is, which is what she's done. She's rolled back the Obama, Obama guidelines. Now, these guidelines said that universities should use the preponderance of evidence standard when adjudicating sexual assaults complaints. So she's taken that away and said, nope, no, that's no longer required. So now universities can use whatever standard they like in terms of judging the evidence of a sexual assault complaint. So maybe it might be the clear and convincing evidence standard, or maybe it might be the absolute and un- unambiguous ev- evidence standard. So you can, you can actually pull down the rate, you, you can drag down the rate of sexual assaults by making them much, 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 much harder to prove, which is what she's done. So she's done that. She's taken away the, the preponderance of the evidence process uh, when it comes to adjudicating whether something has indeed been judged to be a sexual assault. She said her concern was basically that the poor students who had been falsely accused of sexual mis- misconduct um, were suffering, whereas the people who'd actually been sexually assaulted aren't necessarily of concern to Betsy DeVos. So it's a moral question. That's the first thing she's done as the Secretary of Education for the United States of America. What else has she done? Well, she's rescinded the guidelines that Obama put in for civil rights protections. Early in the administration, the Department of Education, the Department of Justice rescinded the guidelines under her that allowed transgender students to use bathrooms aligned with their gender identity. So she's all concerned about people going to the toilet. She said that um, withdrawing the guidance did not leave students without protections and the court ruling and other guidance documents should be used to enforce um, any, any rights. She said in an internal memo that the department was scaling back investigations into other civil rights violations as a matter of policy at all public schools and universities. So the less we actually investigate, the less we'll find that will solve the problem. In the two months that followed this internal memo, the department also closed or dismissed more civil rights complaints than had been done in previous administrations. The department said under her that it was striving to address a large backlog of cases and working quickly to address individual complaints in a case-by-case basis, uh, which had built up apparently during the Obama administration. Well, she did this by saying, oh, well, then they've been dismissed. You get rid of them. You put them in the bin. Then you don't have any problems. Of course, some civil rights advocates have raised flags when the department rescinded guidance outlining the rights of students with disabilities and as part of the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. Um, it also comes in terms of racial discrimination in terms of civil rights stuff as well. So, so she's solving problems by putting them all in the bin. What else has she done? Betsy DeVos, prior to becoming the Education Secretary, was a prominent school choice advocate. She was, in fact, an activist. She put her money where her mouth was, her mouth was too. And over the past year since she's been the Education Secretary, she's continued to advocate for charter schools and programs that allow parents to use vouchers to send their children to private schools. Now, interesting quote um, from Michael Apple from the University of Wisconsin. He's a professor there in educational policy. He says, when you look at her speeches, they're like oatmeal. They're very little robust policy initiatives you can actually see in what she says. But what she's doing is changing the debate, which is the first step. In order to make legislation, you have to change the debate. Robert Enslow, the president of the advocacy group for choice, agrees, I expect you to do exactly what she's done, which is elevate the conversation about school choice. She's changed the story. And her advocacy has started to impact, indeed, on some legislation. The Republican tax plan, for instance, which Trump did get through, for example, would allow families to use a tax-free savings account intended for college tuition to pay up to $10,000 for private tuition, a provision that critics say will only help wealthy families who already can afford it, which makes sense. If you get tax-free stuff on money you've got, that's always good. If you haven't got the money, then you don't get the tax-free. DeVos's discussion of school choice also had one of her biggest gaffes of the year when she described historically black colleges and universities as pioneers of school choice, neglecting the fact that these black colleges were necessary because the African-American students were excluded, specifically excluded, from other institutions. Her visit to local schools had consistently been met with protests by parents and teachers who argue that her support 
for these school vouchers will threaten the public school system. Isn't that fascinating? So you have a black-only college that exists because they've been specifically excluded from whites-only colleges. She said, you're pioneers of school choice. And the blacks are saying, hang on, we didn't get a choice. We had to make make the choices for ourselves. Also, she's been a big big advocate of for-profit colleges, and she continues to do that. Um, that's actually a quote, a series of quotes from an article um, from a reputable source, because you only use reputable sources here. It was Time magazine in America, an article in Time magazine on actually just late last year, early this year, by Kate Riley. We'll be returning with what you've all been waiting for, and I've certainly been waiting to tell you all about, our great state school of the year. Actually, not, I'm not of the year. It's pretty good, though, this one. Our great state school of the week. <laughs> Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. <laughs> Welcome back to the last little bit of the Dogs Program. We've been all around Australia and indeed the United States in terms of the problems that are facing state schools, but now I've got a bit of good news. Often and often I hear, I'm not going to send my child to a state school because they're all the same, these state schools. I'm going to tell you about one that's completely not. Um, It doesn't actually exist yet, but it's going to in a couple of months. It's in New South Wales and it's in a place called Linfield, the Linfield Public School. And it is... Amazing. This school has no year levels, there's no bells, and there's no classrooms. What? What's this craziness I hear? Linfield, it's actually called a village, an educational village. It's not going to be recognisable in a school. Now, this is a state school in New South Wales. This isn't some private made-up thing. It's a state school, and it's all evidence-based teaching. Teaching is actually going to happen at some water holes and around a few campfires. Students will take responsibility for their own learning, and high schools are going to be high school students will be working in with primary school kids and kindergarten kids. In fact, there's a new K to 12 school built on the old University of Technology site in Karingai in New South Wales. It will open next year. Now there has been intense interest. 1,200 parents turned up for the information night. 100 families applied for 60 Year 7 places because they're starting small. It will in, in, it will in the end have 2,000 students, but they're taking the first enrolment of 350. Now, the new principal says, my sense is that people are ready for this and looking for something new for their children. Now, let's talk about what's actually going on in this school. It's absolutely famous. It's going to take a stage, not age approach, in which students advance based upon their progress rather than about exactly how old they are. Pupils were divided into K-12 home bases, of about 350 kids each, to encourage a sense of belonging within those smaller groups. Because 2,000 kids is a lot of kids, but 350 kids, you know, you can, you can have your base. Older students will be encouraged to mentor and teach the younger ones. Each student will have their own pathway and they have their own learning mentor and the school will teach through projects that engage disciplines together rather than focusing on one at a time. For instance, if you, there's a project they'll be doing early on about robots that want to engage maths, computer technology, science, and if they created an imaginary story, then, of course, they'll be dealing with English and language and expression. The layout of the school is going to reflect this. Rather than traditional classrooms, there will be waterhole spaces where big groups get together, and campfire spaces where a small group will work with, yes, a teacher, still teachers there. And students can work by themselves if they like, they can go off into a cave. <laughs> now, Ms. Connell, the principal, says this is not experimental. This is not made-up stuff. It's gathering together what we know are the best practice elements from around the world, and we're structuring the school in that way. Steve McKenna is one of the potential parents and he's hoping to secure a place for three, three children at this learning village. Next year, two will be at high school and one in early primary and having all three in the same school across the road, he said, will be just logistically fantastic. Oh, a local state school. He's also a fan of the approach. He says, look, I was on board with this idea, says the parent, and the whole community, he says, is getting behind it. The village grew out of a need to take pressure off the schools in the local area. 
sprawling old brutalist university buildings from the old university that have been designed for learning and they're going to be repurposed for, to put this, to put this learning village inside. It's about innovating. It's about looking forward at a new model of how we deliver education. That's really exciting, says the local politician, Jonathan O'Day. When the school begins, it will issue old-fashioned notions such as the school bell. It's actually the students' responsibility to get to the classes on time for themselves. The cross-discipline approach means their day will not actually be divided up into subjects like the schools of old. It's a flexible timetable. It's not as though each student was going to go to English and then go to maths and then go and pick up all this stuff. It's actually a completely different approach. So I think this is great. I'd be very interested to see. I think we're going to revisit it in 12 months here on the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So congratulations to Linfield. Linfield K-12, you are our great state school of the week. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words, it is actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive great deal. relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. That's it for the Dogs Program. If you're interested in what we've been talking about, you can get hold of us at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Gene, we'll be back next week. But until then, from Dale and myself, it's bye from the Dogs Program. Bye for now. From 
San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your hill it's there you find your hill I dreamed I saw your hill last night alive as you and me says I but Joe you're ten years dead I never died says he